This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got? Well, we're going back to our um, where we started, right? The, the presence, we're going back to our roots. So today we're going to be focusing on the man that's on the $50 bill, Ulysses S. Grant. Indeed. And uh, and I think we're going to, you know, we're going to not just talk about his presidency because I think this guy overshadows just a presidency. And quite frankly, his presidency, as we will mention, is quite underwhelming, I would say. Well, he does a few so, things. He does a few things. Yeah. But oh, generally speaking, the man, you know, Grant, there's so many monuments to Grant. I mean, if you guys are you know, standing in front of the Capitol building, that's the Grant monument in front of it. Like Grant is everywhere. Um, He is a huge personality in American history. Tom, you want to kind of give us a little like synopsis of who Grant is? I guess like, yeah, I guess Grant is like, he's probably best known as a union general who led the United States um, to victory over the Confederate States, right? During the civil war. Like we said, he was a two term president. Um, But like you said, Peter, he's kind of dismissed as being like a weak and ineffective president. Um, a lot of historians, they've kind of ranked him, his presidency near, near the bottom. But in recent yep. years, it's kind of a lot of scholars, historians have kind of started to reexamine that. And they said, you know what, maybe his presidential tenure, it's kind of going up. They're saying it wasn't really all his fault or he actually did do quite a bit. Um, so a lot of, so they kind of are contradicting themselves and kind of saying maybe he did a lot more. They said he was quiet, soft-spoken, but he was really brave type, very brave soldier. He was able to inspire bravery within his soldiers on the battlefield. And they said something that was great about him, but also, um, to his detriment also was that he was a very honorable man and he was unwilling to see dishonor in others. So, um, he really wasn't big into politics, but he winds up becoming, you know, the president of the United States. Um, he wasn't a great speaker. But he was really good, um, like we said before, as far as getting his point across one way or other. He was really um, liked him. He, mar- he, he really admired Lincoln. And he did marry a lot of Lincoln's re- uh, the stuff that Lincoln wanted to do in the Republican Party after the war was won, after he became president. He wanted to free and save people, save the republic. Um, he presided over a very um, unstable economy, but that was also producing mm-hmm. a lot. Right after the Civil War, he he was one of the big supporters of the Transcontinental Continental Railroad. He saw the completion of it. He tried to do what he felt was right, not only for African Americans but also Native American policy. He did a lot for that. He did a lot of civic civil service reforms. So he's he did do a, quite a bit when he was president. He doesn't necessarily get um, credit, credit for it. Or a lot it, winds, of credit, it, yeah. it, it winds up ending in a panic. It winds up ending really badly for him. But he yeah. wins both ter- both elections pretty easily. And he goes on in life, but you know, even his last few days, he just spends it trying to, um, like, we'll get to finishing his yeah. memoirs, yeah, in order yeah. to in order to provide money for his family because he's actually broke, which you don't really think yeah. a president of ever going broke. So he, this guy, his life is really full of highs and lows. So uh, let's get started. I think the plan is we're we're going to kind of elaborate a little bit on his early life and and the military career. Then we'll kind of shift over to the Civil War career. That'll be like the second part. And then we'll go to presidency and, and latter life, uh, you know, kind of to finish it off with. I see where it goes, but, um, yeah. So Grant was born to Jesse Root Grant. He was a tanner, you know, with animal hides and whatnot, and Hannah Simpson. And he grew up in Georgetown, Ohio. Interestingly enough, did you know that his name is not actually Ulysses? Yes. Right? So his name is Hiram. Um, his name is Hiram and... Therefore, that's the first name, and his middle name is Ulysses. So it's Hiram Ulysses Grant. Well, what happened is in 1839, 
um, his father had, had a lot of connections in Ohio and basically got an appointment for Ulysses to go into the U.S. Uh, military Academy at West Point, which is a huge deal just to go in. And Ulysses hated working for his father's business, so he decided, fine, let's just do this. I'm going to go to West Point. Now, he nev- never really had any interest in military life. It just seemed like an escape from his family business because of the fact that he did not want at the academy to have an acronym HUG, which would be embroidered like on his clothing. So when he enlisted, instead of going with Hiram Ulysses Grant, he switched it and went with Ulysses Hiram Grant. However, there was some kind of a, a mistake that was made in the paperwork when he entered West Point. So it actually, his name was written as Ulysses S. Grant. And S actually doesn't stand for anything. Uh, he yeah, simply nothing. accepted it. Yeah. And it just became the you know middle initial and he became Ulysses S. Grant. And interestingly enough, while he's at West Point, people start calling him by this imaginary S. They start calling him Uncle Sam Grant or they call him his classmates. A lot of them call him Sam. That's his nickname. It's not even remotely his name. Um, when he entered West Point, he was very little. Supposedly he was like five feet tall and he wound up growing while he was at West Point um, during the four years. But I mean, the one thing that's always brought up, especially when you study his military um, accolades from the Civil War, he was a mediocre student at West Point, right? He graduated 21st in a class of 39. So like right in the middle. The only thing that he really had high marks in was horsemanship. Just, yeah, just what he liked. Like he said he would skip out on church services and stuff yep. like that. He wasn't a great student, like you said. Um, but when it came to like the horsemanship, that was like his like thing that he loved. He graduates as a second lieutenant, 4th U.S. Infantry. Um, he's stationed in Missouri, and he actually, that's where he falls in love with his roommate uh, sister. So his roommate sister, Julia Boggs Dent, uh, comes from a really, you know, in Missouri, a really known family. They own slaves, fairly wealthy. Um, they secretly become engaged because Julia's parents are like not excited necessarily about Grant. Um, so they can become engaged. And then 1846, they don't get a chance to get married yet because the Mexican-American War starts. And if you guys want to know about that one, you could listen back to one of our podcasts about it. But Grant is then commissioned and sent to fight in the Mexican-American War, along with a lot of who's who of American generals from yeah. the Civil War, right? That's Yeah, that's really what I used to always teach about the Mexican-American War, was also that, like, all these names, these are all, this is like the prequel to the Civil War. You're going to see all yep. these names again. And all these guys, they all knew each other from that war. Yep. Grant and Lee knew yeah. each other. They they, yeah. they met each other a few times. They had high respect for each other. Like, oh, he's a good general. Like, they well, a good, good soldier, basically. They yep. knew each other. And, uh, and, you know, eventually Robert E. Lee becomes his, like, I guess, arch nemesis, you know, in the Civil War. But um, Robert E. Lee is older than Grant and has a much higher rank than Grant during the Mexican-American War. But, you know, while there, Grant, um, again, it kind of showcases his horsemanship. He's That's really all his high marks. Everyone's like, wow, this guy just knows how to ride horses. Um, he initially is assigned under General Zachary Taylor, again, big name. Uh, then he gets transferred over under General Winsfield Scott, and he really distinguishes himself in battle in um, 1847, so a year before the war ends, and basically is commissioned as a captain, and um, and that kind of becomes his rank. So nonetheless, he doesn't like this war, very much like another man that is not really known yet, but eventually becomes fairly known, and that is Abraham Lincoln, who at this time 
you know, he's an attorney, he's a lawyer, and Abe Lincoln is talking about the idea this is an unfair war. We're simply going into Mexico because we're trying to steal Mexican land. And and at the same time, Grant is very similar with his views. He's like, I, you know, what? I don't like this war. I think this is a wicked war and I don't think it's fair and blah, 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 which, which comes up later on, which is kind of interesting. So then it's done, right? War ends, 52. Um, he's actually assigned to the Pacific Coast. And he winds up leaving his family behind. He had two sons by now. Uh, he leaves them behind in the East Coast. And he's kind of upset. After a year or so, he starts drinking at his post. He's like, you know, I don't want to be here. I miss my family. And this kind of comes up a lot in his biography. This this drinking problem. It kind of really comes up here first is when he's separated from his wife and two young kids. He hates the post um, in California. What happens is basically he resigns the army in 1854. He's like, I just I need to go back to my family. And he, he, comes he never back. planned on being in the army for a long time. You know, nope. right? That was something yep. I, I saw quite a bit. He said I was, he's going to serve four or five years and retire anyway. He didn't yep. want to be a soldier. It's more something like his father kind of. Yeah. No, it definitely pushed he, on he, him. He wanted to be like land. He, he tried a bunch of different careers too, like land surveyor. Because he was actually good at drawing maps, right? That was yeah, they said was artist, very artistic, dude. Yeah. Um, so he comes back. Yeah, he comes back uh, to Missouri and basically starts farming his um, wife's family's uh, 80 acre farm. And um, it's his father in law's farm. He helps out there, you know, through his wife, Julia. And later on, this comes up. Actually, recently, this came up that he had slaves. Grant actually never owned a slave. Uh, well, they said no he owned paperwork. one. I saw that he owned. Well, he, he owned one. Free one. He freed one. He, right? he one somewhat. He owned um, a, a slave. Um, through his in-laws. Now, his father yeah. was an abolitionist. His father did not believe that. In fact, his father hated the fact that his son married into a family that owned slaves. But um, there was one that he did actually free, a man named um, William Jones. And after a year, he freed him for no money. Not that he just said, even though at the time, Grant was pretty broke. He yeah. just was like, he had no interest in it. And um, people that knew him basically said, and even um, Williams uh, actually said, like he couldn't force himself, to, he could never force... He, the slaves that he did was oversaw on the station to, to do anything. He just mm-hmm. couldn't. He just couldn't do it. He said he was too gentle of a guy, all right yeah. now, and too good, good tempered. And he was. They say yeah. he just wasn't a slavery man. In his memoirs, he kind of just says like he just didn't see like how one man could be someone else's property. He just didn't. Yeah. See, it just didn't register for him. So he what, even said he, he also writes he wasn't really anti-slavery or an abolitionist. He says like it didn't make sense. Like what, how you can't own someone else. That's just not something that should exist and so this is also why he failed he failed at the whole farming venture right oh hardly yeah. um hardly yeah so he he literally failed he was trying he, to sell sell firewood for a while right? that's what he was trying to do like yeah no, sell firewood so believe it or not so this is the 1850s right so the road to civil war things are like heating up between north and south and when the civil war starts he's back with his father like he's back working his father's business He's drinking. Things didn't work out for him. Um, you know, a lot of people think like, you know, war started and he's a general right away. No way. He literally no. just, yeah, he he was kind of in a bad place when the war started. Um, so yeah, so let's let's kind of talk about. I guess that transitions us to the second portion here is uh, his civil war record because he initially when when war starts again, he's back with his father. He's um, you know, working in the store. And he is appointed colonel of a very unruly regiment, right? He decides to rejoin the army. He needs the money. And he's also called, they, the, he's called the service, too, because he has some experience. Yep. 
right? No, well, he's a like, West Point graduate. I mean, that's yeah. So like, you have to you have to come in there, yeah. And he does. It's like a ragtag group of. That's where everything says is it's a ragtag group, right? Ragtag group. Yep. The twenty first right. Illinois Volunteers. They're like, okay, yeah. no one wants to command these guys. Let's give it to this guy. Um, and he does right. So what's also interesting is because of his father's connections and influence, because he's a businessman in the area, the U.S. congressman from Illinois actually names Ulysses a general, Brigadier General, which is kind of a big deal because th- this guy doesn't, I mean, again, he has got experience from Mexican-American war, but he's not, by no means a, really a general. And Brigadier General meant that it was assigned by, not by the U.S. Army, but by a civilian, more or less. So the real army guys don't really um, put too much, what's the word I'm looking for, respect, I guess, towards... Um, yeah, he had generals. respect. The, the volunteers respected him. His men yeah. respected him. A lot of the other um, yeah, commanders, I guess you would say, didn't yeah. like him as much or not didn't respect him. But, you know, he, they took no. And he does do see he does um, win a lot of battles in the Western theater. Obviously, yeah, he wins the first captured, one ever in a Western theater. Yeah, so let's get into he that. Captures Fort, Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson in Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of where he gets his nickname, too. So he's uh, fighting under Henry Wagner. Um, Halleck, right? He's like the main actual army general. And on February 16th of 62, it's really the first major Union victory of the war, period. And that's at Fort Donaldson, right, in Tennessee. Ulysses S. Grant gets his unit and manages to get 15,000 Confederate troops to surrender to him. Is, Go that ahead. When they surrender un- is that when they surrender unconditionally? Absolutely. And so what happens? That's How does he- that play in? Right? Well, well, then that's kind of uh, they want to surrender, and but they you know we're really to discuss the conditions for surrender, and he's like, no, there are no conditions. You're surrendering. That's the end of yep. it. And that's yep. when his troops kind of give him a new nickname. Um, that it's uh, uncon U.S. stands for unconditional yep. surrender grant. So that's what yep. he's basically known as, or for some of his troops, and it kind of carries them later on, even though there were, there are going to be conditions. But that's why the soldiers like him. He, he's always well liked by the soldiers, like, yep. even in the Mexican American War. Like the ones that he served with, and all throughout the Civil War, he's he's very well liked by the men in his command. He also never really dressed like a general. Uh, he hated army uniforms. They said he was always dirty. He basically like he never had his stripes on or his stars. Like he, people, unless you like knew it was him, you did not know that it was the this general. Is the, this is a guy, yeah. <laughs> this is the main guy. So he's promoted to major general after Donaldson. And then the next battle happens, which is at Shiloh Church, right near uh, Pittsburgh Landing in Tennessee. This is April and um, 62. And what happens here is also same thing. Uh, this time around, the Confederates attack a, basically a sleeping unit, Grant's unit. And he, instead of, I mean, they do suffer many losses, Grant's unit. But instead of losing, they actually turn it around on the Confederates and they manage to beat the Confederates in this, you know, Confederate attack. Again, this brutal is kind battle, of a brutal battle. Brutal battle. But yeah, very like double-edged sword because of the fact that so many Americans lost to the Confederate in this battle. However, the fact that Grant was able to turn them around, that like it hurt, but it really helped his reputation. Um, and the next biggie here is he starts to advance towards Vicksburg with his armies. So now he's a major general. He's fighting in the West. Meanwhile, and again, we could really do a whole podcast, a few podcasts on the Civil War, but the Civil War is mostly fought here in like the Northeast, you know, to Southeast kind of, but it's fought here in the East. And because of that, no one really pays too much attention to what's happening out West. Meanwhile, out West is when there's this guy, Ulysses S. Grant, that's actually winning battle after battle after battle versus 
you know, his counterparts in the East are losing battle after battle after battle. So um, Grant becomes pretty much the only winning, you know, American general. Yeah, Terry and Sherman he, for the most part. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Sherman's, yeah. And Sherman like becomes his right hand man. But so he advances towards Vicksburg, Mississippi, and it's the last major Confederate stronghold on the Mississippi River. And what he basically does is he surrenders it. And that's right. He surrounds it um, and lays a siege to lays Vicksburg. siege. I think what's also important to mention is right before Vicksburg, um, in November, um, after the Emancipation Proclamation, Grant orders his commanders to incorporate former slaves into the Union mm-hmm. Army. And he gives them clothes, shelter, wages for their services. So yeah. this also boosts his men. He gets like over 40,000 men at this point because he's doing this. So he's yeah. able – he has his extra manpower now to be able to go and help on this Vicksburg campaign because of that. Yeah. And, you know, he gets Vicks- – Vicksburg surrenders the same weekend as Gettysburg happens on the other side of the United States. Yeah, so it's like a one-two um, punch to Confederacy. Yeah. It really is, yeah. Because when Vicksburg surrendered um, on that July 4th of 1863 – Basically, the Confederacy has no more real power presence in well, the he West. Splits, it splits the Confederacy, it splits the Confederacy. Confederacy right? Because yeah, they control half. the Mississippi River, and that's it. Yep. So, so yeah, and in Louisiana, the Port uh, Hudson in Louisiana falls um, a few days later. So basically, Confederacy, as you said, Tom, is cut in half. Like, he is winning. And because of this, um, so Gettysburg happens, like I said, the same weekend, except... At Gettysburg, as much as it was a huge battle, because there's no question about it. I mean, we have a podcast on that, too, if you guys want to listen back. Um, you know, Lee's army escapes back in the south. Yeah, you know? that, that goes with McKellen, all that stuff. Like, they yep. really, I guess you can analyze Gettysburg. And I know we talked about another pocket. The war should have ended or could have, let's just say could have, ended right there in Gettysburg. Yep. If, it was, if certain things were done, if... You could make the argument that if you had like Grant or Sherman or one of these more aggressive generals in charge at that point, that maybe you could have ended the war right there instead yeah. of letting Lee's soldiers get away. You could have ended the war in 63 instead of going on for two more years, but it doesn't. But then Lincoln's pretty much had, you know, he's done and now he's looking for, uh, and there was some talks before this, actually, I believe, of after Vicksburg of giving the command to Grant, they were, or maybe bringing him up east to run Army of Potomac. But he was like, ah, he did, he kind of like just like said no to the idea when people brought it up. No, it was never formally yeah. brought up, just like in conversation. Yeah. But he really did. He just said he didn't want to upset the uh, chain of command in the east. He just knew yeah. like he 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 knew what he was doing in the west. He knew he was being successful. It's it was gonna be. He knew it was different up east. Yeah. So he does the the story of him being brought to DC is awesome. Um, he so eventually, as you said, he, they make the call. He's like, I, I need this guy. I need this guy to like lead my armies here. So Lincoln calls for him, and um, he appoints him lieutenant general in March of eighteen sixty four, and basically entrusts him with command of all United States armies, all of it. He's like, you are in charge of all my armies. And uh, what's interesting is. Grant takes his son and they go to D.C. to meet with the president. But again, newspapers are scarce. No photo- there's photographs of him, but there's, they're not a lot. So no one really knows what he looks like. So when he gets to the hotel, again, he's dirty like he always was. He's not really wearing a general's uniform. He shows up with his son and he asks for a room. And they give him this like crappy room because they were saving the good room for the general and they're like well you know we're waiting for the general so they gave him this crappy room and then he comes downstairs like an hour later all cleaned up in his general's uniform because he's about to set off to meet the president of the united states 
and they're like, oh my gosh, like you are General Grant. We're so sorry. Like that was not your room. We apologize. And he's like, yeah, no big deal. It's fine. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Um, so like, Here's he a humble so guy. Plain. Yeah, so plain. Yeah. Like, they didn't even know. Here we are. He becomes Major General. Um, he basically decides that to challenge Robert E. Lee near the Confederate capital in Richmond, Virginia, and he assigns William Tecumseh Sherman, um, which we really should do a podcast on one day as well, to lead oh, yeah. the Western Union Army southward through Georgia, right? Um, this is known as uh, Sherman's March to Sea. It's extremely brutal and basically destroys the Confederacy's will, really, to uh, to continue fighting. Will to fight, yeah, and he's just wiping them out. Like It's, it's almost a war of attrition. It, he yeah, knows absolutely. that does, the Confederacy can't win a war of attrition. So he does get um, some... People Stock like him, but but yeah. but people are saying he's he's a butcher. He starts to be called, yep. called like a butcher because this is when you start seeing these casualty to- totals just go up. Is he's constantly engaging the Confederates. He's like, all right, we lose ten thousand men, they lose seven thousand. That's fine because we can replace those ten thousand. They can't replace the ones that they're losing. And, and we were replacing them that. with immigrants. I mean, immigrants. Yeah, continues to getting yeah. off the boat. Oh, hi, yeah. Irish. Go to the Irish yeah. Brigade. So, yeah, so while Sherman's ripping through Georgia, like you said, you, you we have Grant is just like just not giving up, throwing everything he's got. And eventually what happens is he pins Lee down in April in Petersburg, a defensive line right before, you know, he's he has to give up. So essentially Petersburg is actually the first like trench warfare battle, interestingly enough. So there's defensive line and eventually Lee has to give up the line because just Grant is relentless and his armies are relentless. Which leads to April 9th, the actual surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. It essentially, in effect, marked the end of the Civil War, right? But Grant acted, again, like a like a true, you know, classy dude with regards to the Appomattox Courthouse surrender. Yeah, because he, um, he meets Lee, he, he addresses him, he doesn't, he doesn't treat him as a traitor. That's what, you know, like people yep. were worried that they were, like they were all going to be hanged. Because if you really look at it, the, they, the Confederates were traitors by definition right mm-hmm. they rebelled yep. against the union and but he, he treats them very well but and again this is also what lincoln was told him what to do right yeah he's like you know we fought what? so long yep. valiantly you know um it's one of the worst wars ever fought he mentions to them but remember he also they before he even discuss something else when he first meets lee they just start discussing about the old days in mexico yep you know and then they and then grant writes out slowly the terms of surrender the men and officers were going to be paroled Right, there was going to be amnesty. Each man would just simply be allowed to return to their homes, right? Yeah. As long as they observe the paroles and they what, do like an oath of allegiance, right back to the United States. Lee immediately accepts these return terms because he, you know, yeah. he was like, you know, we I thought we were all going to be like hanged, right? Yeah, 
And um, no, he, and he lets stops. them keep the horses, right? Doesn't he let yeah, them keep he the horses? All they, have to do is lay down, all they have to do is lay down their arms and then yep. pledge not to break them up again. Uh, but And then as they're leaving, a lot of the Union soldiers are like hooting and hollering, you know, taunting them. And Grant quickly puts a stop to it. And then Lee, um, Lee talks about that later, saying he knew that, you know, it's people like Grant in control, then that it would be easy to bring the South back into the fold if this is how they were going to be treated. Because they really weren't, I think they weren't going to be punished as severely as a lot of them feared they were going to be or could have been. Yep. So yep, things yep, are looking yep. pretty good. But then this is in 1865 in April. We know what yep. happens just a little bit after that. <laughs> we well, yeah. So, and that. this is, this is a close one too, because he's almost at the fort. I mean, let's get out of the way. He was, he was supposed to be next to Lincoln at Forest Theater and highly likely he would have been shot. Right. Or, well, yeah, or he, he wasn't, he, or, he was invited. What if he like he, jumped they, in? What if he jumped in yeah, and saved yeah. him? Yeah, he could have, he oh. could have, he could have fought back, but they, they actually were invited to Fort mm-hmm. Theater, but they declined. Um, his, um, his wife, Julia wanted them to travel. They had plans in Philadelphia. So, yep. but he was also, but remember that's a big conspiracy too. They were targeting a whole bunch of individuals, not just, yeah. uh, not, not, not just, just the president, um, not, not just a president. And then Johnson but, becomes president, and he does not get along very well with Johnson. No, he does not. But, you know, just kind of going back real quick before we get into Johnson, apparently, I mean, based on, like, some of the books and sources I looked at, it, the issue here was that Grant's wife did not like, what's her name, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. Yeah, well, yeah, and a lot it, of people didn't like her. She was just kind yeah, of, like, not fun. And that's why they were like, we're not going she's to the just, theater with these people. Yeah, she's like, she didn't want to sit there for a couple of hours next to her, basically. Yeah, she's like... We're out, that's what, Ulysses. That's what, yeah, that's what, yeah, even save their lives or doom Lincoln. Because you would think, you know, Grant is a general. But then again, Booth was a – he was famous. Yeah. You know, it was easy for him just to walk up and – I don't know. Yeah, I don't it's know. One what if, it's one of those what if. He, he wouldn't even know what was going on necessarily. Yeah. Or maybe Agreed. maybe Booth flips out and shoots Grant instead because, you know, Grant's the guy who actually beat Lee, you know? True. Right, you're right. I mean, he only he had a small pistol. I mean, this could have he wouldn't have been able to yeah, fire no, two he shots. Get, he only get no, he only get one shot off. And Lincoln was yeah. like a big guy. Lincoln knew how to fight. Remember, yeah. Lincoln's in the wrestling hall of fame. He's a wrestler, yep. He's yeah. A wrestler. So Lincoln, that's one reason why the the South didn't go after Lincoln. Other times, they feel he's going to fight back, and we're, they just want to kidnap him and ransom him. Like he'll fight back, and we'll probably have to kill him to capture him because he's not. You know, no. he was a strong guy. This guy used to, you know, haul haul lumber around, and he's a vampire no, hunter. So you know. <laughs> that's actually a great book and a good movie all right so johnson as you, you kind of alluded to this president johnson uh becomes president he is considered one of the worst presidents in american history i mean this guy basically kind of lets the um southern confederates ex-former confederates uh, more or less have their way with former slaves that in the institute black codes and he's kind of like glossing over this and you have congress a, a very this eventually becomes this the congress that institutes reconstruction we also did a podcast on that one guys if you want to go back and listen to it but um johnson is super not popular he becomes impeached he's the first president to be impeached and and he tries to actually use grant um you know he sends grant on like this greeting tours and stuff and he's he's trying to appoint him to a position that he has no right to appoint him to and grant's kind of seeing this that johnson is just kind of using grant's popularity so he's like nah i'm out so he instead, Grant, ties himself to the Republican Party instead of Johnson's Democratic Party. Yeah, well, which... What really angered him, too, was um, – sorry, people. What really no, angered no, him, no. too, I'm sure you saw, was that um, Johnson was kind of going against some of the surrender terms that Grant mm-hmm. had given Lee at Appomattox. 
Like, and he wanted to actually um, bring up um, Lee and a lot of the other ones on him, all the other Confederate generals on imprisonment and possibly hanging because he wanted to like really punish the treason. And then when Grant finds out about this, he actually goes to the White House and says, if you do this, you're breaking my terms, you're breaking my word, breaking my honor that I gave Lee in, in, in the Appomattox courthouse, the terms. And he's like, I will resign. And Grant was so popular in the country at this time that by having, if Grant resigns his commission as general, it's just not going to look good for Johnson, who's already um, unliked. And yeah. that's really when Johnson gets mad and starts sending him around, like you said, and trying to just use him as more of like a political pawn than anything else. And then he breaks away from him and joins the radical Republicans. Really just because yeah. he doesn't like Johnson. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, he gets nominated for president in um, 1868. And uh, the last line of his acceptance speech is, let us have peace. It kind of becomes a, a line that's attributed to him a lot throughout history. Um, that became the Republican campaign slogan, let us have peace. He goes against Horatio Seymour, uh, former governor of New York. Um, you know, it was a fairly close race, but Grant wins it and becomes just another American general that became a president. Americans the love. One. Yeah, he was he was 46, right? I think 46. at the yeah, time 46. he was the youngest president ever. Yeah. But he was a remember, we love giving generals we like, we like presidencies. Generals, yeah. So we had, what we have Washington, we had Jackson, we had Taylor. Right. I mean, he, this is, he's just another one. So a completely inexperienced, youngest men elected. Um, and that's also kind of is the reason it hurts, him. It hurts, it hurts him. him. Yeah, because he is super trustworthy. He doesn't know much about governing. So he's like, you know, I'm going to assign these jobs to people that know what they're doing. However, the people he assigned them to. People that helped them, yeah. Were kind of technically corrupt. And by technically, I mean they were corrupt. They were corrupt, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost like saying that Grant by association had a very corrupt presidency however even to this day and historians trust you know trust us the historians have tried they can't pinpoint anything on him like he was literally almost ignorant as to what the heck was going on and the fact that he was broke when he left office kind of shows that too it wasn't necessarily him it's just it was so much of the other there's so many scandals and so much drama in there but he did try to do a lot when he was there like he signed a lot of legislation dealing with the department of justice um he, he brought a Native a American. Uh, did you see they brought a Native American yeah. to be the commissioner of Indian Affairs? First time yeah, ever. Yeah. He tried to improve um, conditions for Native Americans. Um, yeah. He tried to do a lot with foreign He was actually, his policy. wife was really good friends with Susan B. Anthony. And the yeah. women's rights movement supported him for his re-election. That's, they say that he probably won his election and re-election because of Susan B. Anthony and women's rights, as well as because of the fact that a lot of African Americans voted for him because they saw him as the savior, you know, and just kind of the person that was contributed so much to abolishing slavery before we get into like these scandals because there's really two main ones right um you have the whiskey ring and credit mobiliere but very popular just overall i mean they're yeah, they have four children by then grants his daughter nelly winds up getting married in a white house in 1874 public is like super excited about it this is like the wedding of the century another funny story is both Grant's father and his father-in-law. So one's an abolitionist. One is a pro-slavery guy from back in the day. They both move into the White House. Um, And this becomes kind of general knowledge and really public amusement in the newspapers because the two always fight and argue, whether it's in public, whether or not, they're always arguing. So, you know, the Grants were were very popular in the newspapers. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of these issues that we have here. 
So Credit Mobilier is probably the most known one, but I mean, there's, there's quite a few scandals. What, what, bunch, yeah. yeah what, what do you have for some of the scandals? Well, a lot of them, like you said, like the whiskey ones, they were just ones that a lot of people that he put in place because he was such an honest guy and he believed and trusted all these other people that they kind of just are doing things that are to benefit themselves. And he's, since he's the president, he's involved in them, but like he's not involved in them, but you know, he's, his name is attributed to it and it winds up hurting him. But like we said, he didn't really make any money with these, but some of the ones that um, his first term, you had a group of speculators, right? James Fisk and Jay Gold. They mm-hmm. attempt to influence the government and manipulate the gold market. <laughs> they fails, yeah. but they get caught. And it kind of, because there was a panic in 1869, people aren't crazy about that. All right. He yeah. wasn't directly involved in it, but his reputation was really hurt by it. Because it was, his, yeah, it was in his, it was in his cabinet. That's one of them. Another one was, like you said, was the um, whiskey ring. Wasn't it like internal revenue collectors or something trying to um, accepting bribes from whiskey distillers or something like that to avoid paying yeah, taxes? To, right? to defraud the uh, millions in liquor tax. Yeah. Yeah. And the president actually defended him and he was later acquitted. Um, this guy, um, Orville uh, uh, Babcock. But mm-hmm. um, still, again, it's just like everyone that was everyone that he kind of appointed to job, not everyone, but a lot of the people that he appointed to these jobs wound up doing something not right. You know, trying basically did something in order something corrupt a lot of times. I mean, his secretary of war was, yeah, I mean, at one point, so you have, first of all, in the whiskey ring, right, 238 federal government persons were indicted. Like, this is pretty crazy. And then in in 76, there was an investigation that his secretary of war, Beltnap, had accepted bribes from merchants in Indian territory. So it's like, it keeps on following him. It's like one thing after another. And then you have the Credit Mobilier, which basically was... Um, it's a shady, you know, fake corporation that was designed to steal profits from the Union Pacific Railroad that was building the Transcontinental Railroad. Yes, and, yes. And what these guys did is basically they created a fake company called Credit Mobilier um, that was subcontracted by the Union Pacific Railroad. By the way, uh, when I say they created, a lot of congressmen owned stock in Credit Mobilier. And this company would charge the government for things that didn't really happen because this company didn't exist. So they're like, all right, we are uh, have to use some dynamite to get through this mountain here. It's going to cost $3,000. And then the credit mobile would like charge $3,000 for this fake work that was never taking place. And then congressmen and people within Grant's inner circle would uh, approve these contracts, knowing that they were basically using government money to pay themselves for things that were not actually being done. So this was exposed which again it was just back and forth back and forth and and grant kind of just blundered in all this he was just like oh come on between his secretary of war you know found guilty of all these convictions he's just he basically limped to the end of his second term i i, I would say so yeah I mean, he was still popular with the people to somewhat um yep. but he had he wasn't going to run for a third term at this point nope. obviously he just didn't have the political backing a lot of the um republicans were against him or they didn't trust him anymore he just said that he's just not. He said he wasn't up for it, and I think he was just kind of tired from all the all the scandals. Like it yeah. was just one after another, and each one within it was tarnishing his name, even though he had nothing to do with it. It just wasn't the best. And then Rutherford B. Hayes becomes president, which yeah. Well, yeah, that's that ends Reconstruction and basically, you know, cr- sets up eventually Jim Crow laws, separate but equal, and and really sets African Americans back. Uh, for the next hundred years. Yeah, because, well, I guess we didn't talk about it, but Grant did do or attempted to do a lot, like going after the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, there was the KKK Act, right, um, of 1871. He, 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 pushes, he pushes the 15th Amendment, gets that passed. 
Yep. It allows, that allows African-Americans the right to vote. So mm-hmm. he's doing a lot um, in the realm of civil rights. He just thinks it's the right thing to do. But then when he leaves, it just stops. Yep. And I just, I, sorry, I was talking over you before, but um, he also did the KKK um, Act of 1871, which basically was designed to enforce civil rights um, through suspending habeas corpus and, and basically allowed Grant and the federal government to go directly after KKK without a due process of law. Just like if they're caught in the act of, of suppressing civil rights, they could be taken down. I mean, this was a pretty intense um, act in 1871. So yeah, he definitely tried you know, to do to do well. So he leaves office uh, and initially uh, him and Julia go on this round the world trip in 1877. Yeah, a lot of people, right? Queen Victoria, Pope yeah, Leo, Otto yeah. von Bismarck, they, um, they, they go all around the world. And it's basically um, Hayes. Even in Japan. Like, this trip. Yeah. yeah, Japan. Unofficial <laughs> diplomat basis where he, yeah. where he does. But like the emperor, no one even sees the emperor. He's like a, like a god in Japan. Meanwhile, here he meets with the emperor and shakes his hand. Like he's, you know, grants are. He's famous. Yeah, he's famous. And then things don't really work out for him again. First of all, in in 1879, uh, there's a faction of the Republican Party that's trying to renominate him for a third term. You could do that at the time. This is pre 22nd Amendment. So he doesn't encourage it. He's like, nah, I'm old. I'm done. I don't want to do this. But he does receive uh, like 300 votes in each of the 36 ballots in the 1880 convention, which is interesting. However, James A. Garfield becomes president for a hot minute there uh, before he himself is assassinated. But Grant invests money through his son in a firm called Grant and Ward, right? And it's uh, it's like an in- investment firm, basically. His son, Ulysses Jr., is a partner, hence Grant versus Ward. So Grant puts all of his capital at the disposal of his son's firm and basically even encourages others to do the same. In 1884, the firm collapses because they're swindled by one of the two people, the Ward guy, Ferdinand Ward. So it, it makes Grant, I mean, it not only tarnishes Grant's reputation and people are like, dude, how stupid can you be that you like put all your money in there? But Grant, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, is broke. Like this man is a former president, former union general. There's already at this time even so many things dedicated to him and he has no money. So well, he was only getting $6,000 a year as a former, that's all that the, the um, presidential pension was at the time, yeah. which was decent for the time, but he spent most of his money doing that world tour. Wealthy friends did buy him a house in Manhattan's upper each side. He tried building a railroad. You see that? He tried building a railroad. No, um, that I missed. To, Me- to Mexico City. But what happened was, and it was actually, he actually was able to convince Chester A. Arthur to um, negotiate a free trade treaty with Mexico. But then the U- United States Senate rejected it. And then the railroad was successful then, and that went to bankruptcy. He talked about when he went in with his sons and how that uh, didn't work. Didn't pan out. So everything, <laughs> he was, everything he was basically trying to do was failing. He did get a personal loan of $150,000. He invested the money again in a firm, but it wasn't enough to save it. Uh, he was basically penniless by this. Yep. And it was really like a personal honor for thing. So he repaid uh, what he could from a Civil War mementos and the sale of, of all of his other assets. But what he um, basically does is he's starting to die. He becomes friends with Mark Twain. Yeah. I read a book about the two of them. Um, it, yeah. it was literally just their friendship. An awesome book. But at the same time, what's happening is he basically gets cancer. He's diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, well, throat cancer. Throat, right? Because he smoked so many cigars. This yeah. dude, every picture I see of him is just him and a cigar. Um, Which is weird because you think about the historical, he's that he was a drunk. And there's some, he was never, they don't think he was ever drunk when he made any major decisions. 
yeah. remember this guy had a tough life and what he saw, but he admits that there were times when he probably drank too much, but he was never yeah. actually a dr- it never it never impaired his ability to be present or general. Yeah. That's kind of more of like history portrayed him later on. Yep. We're trying to rewrite it. That's kind of like going to the background a little bit. But he smoked there. Yes. And that's what really causes his, yeah. his throat cancer. So he's broke. He's got throat cancer. Things are not looking good. And Mark Twain actually convinces him. Um, Mark Twain's like, look, I have my own um, publishing company. Mark Twain's already known by now, but just so we're on the same page. This is the Mark Twain now. Um, and he's like, listen, why don't you, if you want, I promise you, if you could write your memoirs, your life memoirs from the war, the war year specifically, um, I will make sure that your family's taken care of for the rest of their lives. Like, I'll make sure your wife's taken care of if you could write this. I will publish it under my uh, publication and I'll make sure I'll take care of your wife. And, and Grant yeah, kind of said, yeah, they would get a um, 70% royalty, which is yep. unheard of at the time. He yeah. was offered like other ones, like 10%, but because Twain knew what was going on, he said, all right, I'll get you 7% and that's it. Like, you know, 70% royalties. Twain knew the book would sell. He would make money. Yeah. And it still sells. I mean, it's still yeah. to this day, um, you know, one to consider one of the greatest military memoirs. It's still, you could get a Barnes and Nobles. I mean, but what he does is, so they move to a cottage, right? Mount McGregor in New York in the Adirondacks. And basically, um, he's writing, and there's pictures of him sitting there. Uh, this guy looks super sickly, and he's just yeah, he's all covered. He's just writing and writing and writing and writing, and it was like a race against time because he really wanted to finish. Um, so that way, his memoirs were finished, and his wife would be taken care of, and his kids would be taken care of, and he he basically lived just long enough to finish his memoirs. I mean, he died. They said that after he handed in his after. last pages, a couple of days later, he was dead. He is temporarily uh, put to rest in New York City's Riverside Park. And then in 1897, on the 75th anniversary of his birth, his remains were removed, and they were moved to this like humongous neoclassical granite tomb at Riverside Drive, right, in Morningside Heights in Manhattan, where he remains to this day. The project was supervised by the Grant Monument Association, paid by almost 100,000 contributors. And the dedication for it, there's so many pictures of this, um, it was huge. I mean, President William McKinley was there at the time in attendance, and and Grant's one point five million is, people. Yeah, yeah. Grant's it was huge, and Grant's tomb is huge. I mean, if you guys ever get a chance, if you are in a New York City area, tri-state area, just go visit Grant's tomb. It it it's is a, something yeah. to behold. They said it's the largest mausoleum in North America, right? Yep. And his wife was moved there in 1902 when she passed away. And apparently the idea for this was he got this idea from his visit to uh, the tomb of Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain. He saw a similar tomb when they were doing their tour. And they both decided that if, you know, whenever it's their time to pass, they would want something similar. And, you know, there it is. You know, I think that kind of concludes the story of great i mean well you got well you got some fun facts but yeah we got some facts and also what, what he's seen in history well yeah i think one that we didn't touch on that i thought find interesting i didn't even know until i was doing his research is that he tried to annex the dominican republic really he wanted to use it as a military base he wanted to use it as a refuge for um african-americans former slaves to go there and it was actually doing pretty well he thought it was going to happen but then um it, the senate didn't ratify it basically because they just were angry stalled in the senate he had a lot of fights with um the senator by the name of Charles um, Sumner, it defied yep. the Republican Party and it kind of stalled it. But yeah, for a while he wanted to get the um, the, he he was very close to annexing Dominican uh, Dominican Republic. Yeah, what I saw is that he needed Dominican. There's a proof Republic. by the Dominicans. 
was yeah. approved by them too. Yeah, it, that he wanted it because he wanted like a close base to then venture into the mainland to start. Yeah, uh, have you know have this um, canal being built eventually. The one thing I saw too, and and I remember reading this years ago, is that he actually received a speeding ticket by going too fast on his horse carriage through Washington D.C. Um, when he was president, and the guy was really embarrassed when they pulled him over. The constable is like, oh, wait, you missed the president. I'm sorry. And he's like, nope, give me the ticket. I deserve it. Like he always raced his horses. Uh, actually, he had a summer White House in New Jersey. Um, I know a lot of people know this. this. His cottage was destroyed in the 70s, but um, he had this cottage in Long Branch, New Jersey. And every year throughout his presidency in the summers, he tried to get away from D.C., which he thought was just too loud and too hot. And he would chill at the Jersey Shore. Yeah, but what, what do you think? Like, you think he should be um, like his legacy? Like, do you think a lot of the scholars got it wrong? Do you think he's where he did? De- I mean, the guy's on money, so I, I would say nowadays he's he's seen in a pretty positive light, at least in the north. I don't. I mean, yeah, whatever. Yeah, but <laughs> right, different- yeah, but you know what? What else I get the whole idea of a butcher. So I remember hearing yeah. that, but you don't see that as much now as I think even like when we were younger and in school. I remember reading that a bit more. It's kind of been shifted a, a little bit now. Well, I think he, you know. And I and I also think that we're going through a time now where a lot of these historical figures are re, being reexamined, um, you know, through today's lens, you know, twenty twenty two, and 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 I feel like they're trying to reexamine him as well, and actually, you know, pinpoint some negative things about him. But even now, uh, people are have a difficult time finding negative things about him, right? Um, you can always so, find negative things about anybody, but obviously, yeah, like it's a lot of nothing the, sticks, you know, nothing sticks, nothing to, sticks, to or it does or like a lot of the things they were really saying. It's like, eh, not really, like he wasn't corrupt, even back then, they knew he it wasn't really him, it was just that he was too trusting or too gullible to really see it. And he really supported these people, even these people who tarnished his name and brought him down. He still was like, ah, you know, he helped me though 10 years ago, he helped me do this, so I can't be mad yeah. at him. They're like, no, you should be mad at him. You know, he's like, no, yeah. no, he's a good guy. Or, you know, he, you know, it says he was very, he just had this like sense of honor and that was it. It wasn't going to change no matter what. And, you know, it's interesting too, because when you look at the $50 bill, um, a lot of people don't realize, but that's actually a portrait of him as the president. That's not the young portrait of Ulysses S. Grant as, um, you know, when, when he's a soldier and his like, you know, early 40s, late 30s. So it's almost like we put him on the money for his presidential credentials and not for his military accolades. When in reality it was his military accolades that, that really warrant, if anything, some form of wow. celebration, I guess. Right. He wouldn't be president without that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that a grant. I feel like we've been wanting to do this one for a while. Yeah. We've always brought him up and stuff, but we always, yeah. Something else came up. Something else came up, you know, like, like a, like a war and, <laughs> In Europe again. Oh, crazy. Um, Anyway, so that's it. So thank you guys so much for tuning in every week. We really do appreciate it. And if you need to reach us, you could always do so at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Whatever you listen to this, please feel free to leave us a review. We do appreciate those. And again, if you need us, you know where to find us. So I hope everyone has an awesome week and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody.
hope everyone enjoyed our podcast. And if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.